Welcome to the What is Happening in Salt Lake podcast series, brought to you by slc.gov and the Salt Lake Small Business Development Center. The purpose of the podcast series is to review topics relevant to Salt Lake-based business owners and startups, as well as to highlight success stories from other entrepreneurs. My name is Peter Collister. I'm with the Salt Lake Small Business Development Center. And I'm Will Wright with Salt Lake City's Department of Economic Development. And today we're sitting with Annette McIntyre, co-founder and chief medical officer of Magelco Medical, as well as Beth Hoberg, CEO of Magelco Medical. And so tell me, what is Magelco Medical? Uh, Magelco Medical is a medical device company. It's a spin out from the University of Utah. And we are developing technology to measure surgical blood loss accurately and in real time in the OR. And uh, I'm actually, in my past life, my actual profession was that I was an anesthesiologist and I have almost 30 years of clinical experience in the OR. And this was a device that I always wanted to have because uh, surgical blood loss informs some really important patient management decisions, such as how much fluid we have to give our patients to replace the blood loss. And ultimately, we have to base our decisions on the blood loss of whether or not a patient requires a blood transfusion. The problem is that blood is collected in suction canisters in the OR, but it's also diluted there with other fluids, especially wound irrigation fluids such as saline. And so when we anesthesiologists look at these buckets, we have no idea how much blood is actually in there because all we see is a red solution. So to be more accurate at that would be a real improvement to patient care and would decrease healthcare costs as well. So tell me a little bit, how did you make the transition from working in the OR to being at the university? Did you develop the technology? Yeah, it's an interesting story. I always wanted to have a device like this. I happened to be married to a bioengineering professor, so I knew that medical devices came from somewhere and needed engineering development. But of course, I had no idea as a working anesthesiologist of how to go about this. And uh, one day I was literally walking down the hallway in our hospital and there was a sign right there in the middle of the hallway of advertising help in setting up business ideas, making them commercializing business ideas from our local TVC office, which is the Office of Technology and Venture Development. So I thought, wow, you know, uh, there's a person right there sitting waiting for me. <laughs> and so I walked in there and uh, they were extremely helpful and did an invention disclosure right then and there and then worked with the TVC over the next couple of years, got funding from them to set up an engineering group and get the project off the ground. That is way cool. That's really cool. <laughs> so I originally met Annette. I was participating in a conference called We Rock, uh, Women Entrepreneurs Realizing Opportunities for Capital, and happened to sit next to her, which was really awesome. She ended up presenting it at some of our future events and was a panelist for our last one that we did in uh, October. Yeah. And I might add that that event that you and I sat together at the same table in 2017, it was the fall of 2017. That was the very first business event that I've ever gone to in my life. And I was incredibly encouraged by that event, just seeing other women pitch companies, other women out there talking about their business successes. It really gave me a boost and really, I just thought, well, I think I might be able to do this. Yeah. You had it in you all along. <laughs> so walk me through the timing. When did you see that advertisement at the university for the TVC? So I think it must have been around 2012, 2013. Uh, by 2014, with the help and through TVC, uh, we founded a company 
that's when Majocco really got going. Then, of course, development of a company is very dependent on funding and finding the right kind of funding. And I have to say that you know, we did the usual friends and family round, but TVC was very helpful initially in giving us funding. They also supported our patent development and patent filing. And then the next huge boost that we got was through the USTAR TAP grant program. As a matter of fact, I'm very sad to say that <laughs> last year we were the last cohort to get TAP grant funding. Uh, TAP, I think, stands for Technology Advancement Program. And uh, I'm very sad to say that since then, the Utah government has decided to do away with the entire USTAR program. And I just want to say that for us, that was absolutely a turning point to get that money to uh, advance our engineering development of our product. And uh, I don't don't know if we would still be here today if we hadn't gotten that grant. You know, I think a lot of young companies, having worked in economic development on the entrepreneurship side, on the service provider side, and on the investor side, many companies wouldn't be here without the USTAR TAP program or the governor's TCIP. office TCIP program. So I hope our legislature is able to resurrect it in a way for future entrepreneurs. What other types of funding have you taken advantage of? Did you look at SBIR grants? Yes, we did. And uh, I have to put a little pitch here for Mary Carden and her SBIR Center. Uh, they are just uh, phenomenal in supporting that effort. At the time, we were looking at SBIR versus the TAP grant, and the TAP grant just seemed a little bit easier to reach, faster timeline to get it. So we went for the TAP grant at that point, and we were lucky enough to get it. And that was also a highly competitive grant. So now we are sort of coming full circle, and Beth is thinking about doing SBIR again. Yeah. We're looking at SBIR right now to see where we fit and where would be the best place for us to apply. I've spoken at the BioUtah Life Sciences Summit. Mary was able to bring in a program manager from NIH. So anyone who wanted to have a meeting with that program manager could, and it was very, very helpful. So he strongly encouraged us to apply. So we'll be looking very seriously at that. Can you tell me a little bit more about, for those that don't know what SBIR grants are, what, what are they? So SBIR is the Small Business Investment... Innovation. Innovation. <laughs> Whoa, we know these things very well, don't we? Um, so this is a U.S. government fund where any organization, any government organization that has a certain amount of funding is required to put part of that funding into these grants. And these grants are highly competitive. You apply through a specific agency, then you go through this whole process where you're being vetted and um, it's pretty complex. And so as Annette said, having a resource like Mary to be able to help us with that is very unusual. And Utah has about a 25, at least a 25% rate of getting these grants. The average in the United States for a state is 17%. So we do a very good job here. And I think that stat is when Mary helps. That yes, she's the exactly. Secret sauce. It's when Mary helps. Well, that's awesome. Well, coming back to the technology, this isn't something that's in the market now, or is it something that you're testing? Can you tell us a little bit about where you're at and where you're going? 
Right. So we had uh, developed a first generation prototype. We got together with an engineering group in Tennessee, actually, that did our first prototyping. And they were fairly successful in being able to use a proprietary optical probe inserted in the canister to measure the hemoglobin in that canister, which is what we require. However, they were only working with samples of packed red blood cells. So this is a very specific blood product that does not include plasma, just a trace amount of plasma, no platelets. So it's not a whole blood sample. And uh, we are now in the process of developing a prototype based on the previous work that will actually also function in whole blood, which is what we need. So we're in the process of developing our second generation prototype. So how many prototypes do you have to go through in order for the next time I'm in the hospital and I'm cut open, predetermine how much blood I've lost? So that's a really great question. There's no definite number of prototypes. It is an iterative process and it depends on what level of success you have for each prototype. We're expecting to have about three, maybe four and we're working on a second generation one right now. It depends on how successful we are with the optics. It's optically based, so the science is complex, and we have a lot of IP protection around some of that science and how to do this. We are working with some very well-known experts in the optics field right now on it. So we're hoping for only three prototypes, maybe four. So is this a product that we'll have to go through clinical trials or is it something where I've heard about predicate devices can help shorten the time to get to market? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, as far as we know, well, I'm, I'm, we know <laughs> that in that space, we really only have one competitor at the moment. Uh, and this is a, a product produced by Gauss Surgical out of California. Their technology, they have the same goal, which is to measure surgical blood loss, but their technology is very, very different from ours in that they rely on the interpretation of iPad images of the canister and sponges. This is a very cumbersome technology. The OR is a really busy place. Everybody has lots of work to do, especially when a patient's bleeding and to expect people to stand around and take photos is very cumbersome. So actually even Gauss themselves have realized this and they've now shifted their major focus of marketing to prevention of postpartum hemorrhaging. And uh, they're using that technology mainly there. So there is no pre-existing device on the market that's currently actually being used for real-time surgical blood loss monitoring. And um, so for the FDA pathway, oh, yes, we're right. expecting for the FDA pathway to be a class two medical device and a predicate as well as a five. So that would mean we would get to do a 510K application, which would simplify matters quite a bit. So let's put that into something that people can understand who aren't in our area. Band-Aids are a class three device. So everything that sort of touches your body or goes into your body has to be rated. They don't have to have anything, right? You can go get a, a Band-Aid. Uh, if you are getting a knee replacement, then what being put into your body, that's going to require much higher degree of proof that it's okay for you. And that's going to be a class one device. So we sit in the middle there which will be easier. So we will have to do clinical trials. We will do a different kind of clinical trial, though, not the same extent that a drug would have to go through or something that's being put inside your body. 
Yeah, I and mean, just to clarify that a little bit, so this is a device that's not going to be in touch with the patient. It doesn't require to be sterile. It's potentially um, one-time use, so it doesn't need to have any special cleaning procedures. So we don't really have to do a clinical trial because we're nowhere near the patient, nor will we ever get close to the patient. We just have to prove that it's safe for the patient in but I mean, since it's not going anywhere near the patient, there isn't a lot of work to be done. Is it fair to characterize it as you're really a sensing technology that measures blood loss? And so maybe what you have to prove is what you're saying is measured is actually what is? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. To a certain degree of variance. Mm-hmm. And so, Beth, how did you get involved? When I met Annette, she was the CEO, and then she had brought in another CEO a short time after that to help with some of the business side of the company. And you're a recent addition. I am. I joined Mijelco about two and a half months ago, so very recent. I was part of the TVCs, the Center for Technology and Venture Commercialization out of the U. I was part of their program called the EIR program, the Entrepreneur in Residence program. We are uh, entrepreneurs and residents are not employees of the U. They are connected to the U and our whole purpose is to date. The purpose is to date and to get to know all of the different professors and the inventors and to find a technology that is either currently in the Utah system and needs to be taken out in order to be licensed or commercialized or to be matched with an existing startup. And Majelko was an existing startup and they were looking for a new CEO and I was matched with them. We had a few dates and it was a very good match. So what, what was attractive to you about Majelko? I have a technical background. I started my career as a chemist. I worked as a chemist for about seven years. I did some product development. I did some environmental consulting. I earned a graduate degree in physical chemistry. And then I decided to go to the MBA and I wanted to be on the business side. And that's when I transitioned over. But I have stayed very connected to technology and I've worked in healthcare as a consultant. So I was looking to make healthcare better to bring a technology to market that would lower healthcare costs and would improve some patient outcomes. So when I came across the Majelco, our device is called Hemoptics, easy for me to say, Hemoptics. And it clearly makes a great case for how we can very inexpensively improve patient outcomes. Some very significant patient complications can be prevented as well as lower healthcare costs. So it's a win-win on all sides. That's interesting. Where did the name come from? I know you both speak German and I wonder if uh, there may be something to that. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a, so it's actually quite complicated to find a name for a company that's not already in use. So we spent a long time playing with different names. In the end, we came up with this because it's kind of a combination of the starting letters of the founders. And also, I like the similarity to the word Majelico. And I don't know if a lot of people in North America know this, but there's an island in Spain called Mallorca, and they make pearls, uh, artificial pearls, and that actually are also quite valuable. <laughs> and um, so Majelco and Majelico, I thought, well, this could be the pearl of medical devices. <laughs> That's fun. Well, Will and I were joking, uh, just an hour ago about the similarities between having children and starting companies. And I think as a founder, when you start a company, it really feels like a child, like it's your baby. What did you see in Beth that made you want to share, Majelko? <laughs> 
Well, we are delighted to have Beth, I have to say. Um, I think we, throughout our so-called dating uh, process, it became very apparent that Beth and I are actually, we have a lot of very similar traits. And that made me feel good because even though I'm not sure I had the energy to keep driving the company forward, I did think that I had a fairly good approach to how I was doing things. And I saw those traits in Beth. Uh, so I think Beth is very detail-orientated. She's very committed. She's uh, passionate. And those are all things that I think are extremely important, even though she herself doesn't have any startup experience per se. But those are the sort of things that we were looking for in a, in a new CEO. Now, I always like to ask, do you have a board of directors? We do. Yes. How did you put together your board of directors? Oh, that's a really good question. And it's a complicated process. I would have to say our board of directors, I'm trying to remember, I think it was really sort of word of mouth. Uh, who do you think would be willing to serve on our board? Who would contribute? And then we just reached out to those people. So right now our board has a biomedical engineer on it who also has entrepreneurial and startup experience. We have the vice chair of the Department of Anesthesia from the University of Utah. So that's another medical person. And he also has entrepreneurial experience. We have a corporate lawyer who also runs his own business. And then we have a business entrepreneur who has years and years of finance experience, setting up business plans, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very, very distinct group of people with many years of experience who could contribute to the success of the company. And that actually, the board was a big reason why I was interested in Majelco versus some of the other organizations and technologies I looked at. Very, very strong board. I met the board members and they are not just sit on the sidelines. They are passionate about this as well. So it's good to have a board that has some expertise, that has some passion and can really see what we can accomplish. Well, I think that's pretty remarkable. I think a lot of young companies don't realize the power of having a board. And while the board may not help with your day-to-day -day operations, some of that experience either with startups or in functional areas can really help the team's experience beyond what the team has. But to, to shift gears a little bit, what is it like to be a woman in business? So I've been in business a long time now. I got my MBA quite a few years ago and inside organizations, I've been a consultant and my focus has always been on strategic change and business transformation. So a woman in business varies a lot. I've worked in different countries. I've worked in different states. I have lived here in Utah for about the last 15 years. And there are some, some similarities. I would say generally in business, it's still the case where women have to be a little bit better than the men in order to be rated as the same level as a man. It has been that way for a very long time, and I'm sorry to see that it is still that way. I had a physician tell me about his organization a few months ago, and he said that they discovered that the females in his highly specialized area were actually more competent than the males, but the males were the ones who were getting the better assignments. And they had to talk with a bunch of people to figure out, this is a male physician who was telling me this story. They had to talk with a bunch of the physicians to figure out why this was the case and a bunch of the leadership physicians whom were all male as well. And what they discovered is it's kind of both sides. You know, it's the leadership not offering that to the women and it's the women not going after it. And so 
I've seen that to be very consistent in my career as well. It has to be where you have the people who are making the decisions who are really looking at how those decisions are made and what are the biases that are involved in that. And then what are the women themselves doing? Why are we not stepping up? And so something like We Rock really is helpful. And I went to the SoGal pitch competition. And the state of Utah recently has started a lot of things to help women entrepreneurs. And it's great to be part of the community. And it's very supportive. And it's something that has also helped me already just in these past few months. It's been very helpful. Well, a few weeks ago, there were a couple of studies that came out. One rated Utah as having the widest pay gap in the country. And the other one, we were one ahead. We were second to the last when it comes to the pay gap. And I've been involved in the We Rock Conference for a few years now. And one of the interesting data points is women tend to outperform men that are venture capital backed. And there have been a lot of questions digging into why that is. And what has been your experience working in one, medicine, and then two, starting a company, being a co-founder? Well, I would have to say that, uh, so I finished my residency in anesthesiology in 1990, so quite a few years ago as well. I would say that I'm the first generation of women to have entered the OR as physicians. Of course, they've always had nurses. So I just kind of, like Beth, I have been part of of this, you know, being a minority for a long, long time. But I think for myself, I never let that define me. I never let being a woman define me in any way, shape or form. I just went out there and I tried to be the best I could be. And if somebody didn't like it because I was a woman, I thought that was their problem, not mine. <laughs> and, and that's how I approached the business, the, you know, the sort of transition to becoming a businesswoman as well. And I think it's really important to remember that as a woman, just be yourself, be the best you can, and you will be successful. Uh, I think there are all sorts of biases out there, not just towards women, but other minorities. And you just go in there, be confident, be really, really good, blow them out of the water, and you will succeed. Control what you can control. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Do you see that dynamic getting better as you've progressed in your career and coming to the startup space from the medicine? Uh, I Yeah, I mean, I think what's happening, and We Rock certainly plays a big role, SoCal, I think what, what young women need is they need role models and they need support from mentors. And I see that group growing exponentially. So there are now women my age and Beth's age who are in a position to become mentors and role models for the young women in their 20s and 30s who are starting out. And I think they look at us and they say, wow, you know, these women made it. They're fantastic women. Deborah Barasini is a generation above me. She was one of the most successful CEOs in Silicon Valley. She was very inspiring when I first met her to me. And so I think as women become more numerous in the unusual, well, so traditionally unusual fields, they will pull younger women up with them. Well, shifting gears once again, coming out of the University of Utah, do you do much work there anymore or have you moved out? We've pretty much moved out. I think we will always have a relationship with TVC and we continue to have the relationship. They follow up. They are equity holders in our company. (laughs) So, but in terms of the engineering development of our company, we have had to go outside of the state for the specific needs that we have. So what are the missing gaps 
Yeah, it's a really good question. Specifically for the medical device industry, I would have to say that I can only think of one company in the Utah Valley or one that I've been able to find that specifically concentrates on the development of medical devices. There are lots of other engineering companies that do lots of other things. But, you know, when you're looking to develop a medical device, you have the FDA pathway to think about. You have the quality management systems to think about. You have the engineering capabilities that you have to think about. And sadly for us, the whole area of optical engineering, and this goes right back to the University of Utah, is is just not a focus group here. (laughs) So uh, even at the university, the Department of so-called Optical Engineering, which falls under electrical engineering, is underdeveloped, I would say. I've been under the impression the University of Utah is really good at medical imaging. Is that different than optical engineering? Well, we're dealing with blood products as well. So our optics are in a fluid. And when you're working with a fluid in optics, you have much different concerns and different focus than if you're working through optics in imaging. So it's very different. It's a different type of expertise. And then working with actual blood products requires handling of the products in appropriate ways to protect the person who's doing the testing and the development. Okay. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Yes. I learn something new every day. Yeah. I think one of the other gaps that we have here for medical devices in particular is the funding. You know, funding is all about whether or not you can get the money. You can have a great idea. You can have a great team. You can find the people to do the work for you that you don't have within your team, the expertise within your team. You have to be able to fund it in a way that is sustainable and in a way that allows you to provide a good return for your investors. And it requires a good match between the investor and the organization. Here in Utah, we don't have a lot of funding for medical device because the medical device pathway is not long like a pharmaceutical pathway where it could be 10 or 20 years before you have a return on your investment. But it's not software. It's not SaaS. It's not a two-year or a one-year, or even a six-month turnaround time. So finding investors that we are a good match for what they're looking for, that can be a very big challenge, particularly in the Utah area for medical devices. Well, tell us, what else should we know about Michelco? What else should we know about you? Well, I am just going to put one sentence out there that a very well-known CEO has told me uh, when I asked him for a letter of reference for Michelco. And he said, this is a fantastic product. It's a fantastic idea. And once it gets used in the operating room, we're going to all be asking ourselves how we ever did surgery without it. And that's certainly how I feel about it as a physician and anesthesiologist who would be using something like this on a daily basis. And um, I would say, again, funding is absolutely crucial for especially for us or for any medical device to get to market. And again, I would appeal to the Utah legislature to reconsider a funding program for early stage technology development uh, when other funding sources are difficult to get because you're so early on in your development. Yeah, that's definitely a challenge that I've seen. The medical device companies, because the life cycle of development takes so long and revenue is the last thing that you get to after you've finished everything else, it can be difficult to find financing especially when you're looking at years, literally, of of refinement and development. So Beth, the last thought. My last thought is a story. I met someone who doesn't know anything about medical devices and asked me, you know, 
what are you working on? And I'm talking about Majelkos. I'm talking about our device. And this person looks at me and says, I'm having surgery next week. So I explain what kinds of surgeries we would be used in. It's about a million surgeries a year in the United States alone where our device would be used. And this person said, I'm having this surgery and I want your device. I'm going to call my doctor and make sure that your device is in the OR. And I said, oh, we're not there yet. You can't have it yet. And she said, but it would lower my risk so much and I want it. And that's why I joined the company. Because I've had surgery before. I've had these types of surgeries before. I want this device in my OR. I want it in the OR of my husband and my son and you know, the people I love and the people I care about. Well, that's fantastic. Maybe a different path to market. You can go through Amazon, tell the story to the consumer. And then when I show up to the OR, you just it's bring like, it. I, I got this. It's a marketing bring, bring your own canister. I have an app where you can learn how to use it, but I want it. Well, thank you. I love that. I thank you too. both very much. We really appreciate you coming in. Thank you for having thank us. You. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.